morning we're going to talk about politics. I don't usually preach very political sermons, but today I'm going to make an exception because we have to talk about it. It simply cannot be avoided. Some of you I know are inwardly groaning, perhaps wishing you didn't come to church today. <laughs> Others are nervous for me. What am I going to say? Who am I going to alienate or offend? In particular, I want to talk about something that happened at a political rally. I think you guys have heard about it as well. But let me pray first, and then we'll get into this very touchy subject. Father in heaven, thank you that you reign over all kingdoms and nations and governments. Thank you that you are with us this morning. Pray that you would help me as I speak and help us all to have open hearts and minds to what it is that you are saying to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may not have realized it, but we've already gone political this morning. The political rally that I'm talking about, we have just reenacted. Did you realize that? When we waved palm branches and marched around the track and cried out Hosanna, we were dramatizing an incredibly volatile political moment in Jerusalem. You see, I tricked you. <laughs> Politics I want to talk about today are not of this country. They are not even of this century or millennia. They are the politics of first century Palestine in and around Jerusalem. The political intensity of that first Palm Sunday would have made our recent election season look pretty tame. And at the center of this political firestorm is our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 21. I want to look particular at verse 10 to start with, because there a question is posed. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? He's at the center of this political moment. He's the one stirring up the rally, but who is he? Well, depending on where you sat, you answered that question differently. And that's what I want to look at today. Specifically, three groups. Who did the crowds? think that Jesus was? Who did the religious leaders think he was? And who did Jesus think he was? Let me set the scene, and then we'll answer these three questions. Well, it's Passover time when this happens, and that is very significant. It means that the hundreds of pilgrims are making their way up to Jerusalem. They say that the, the population of the holy city swelled during this greatest of all Jewish festivals. If the pilgrims were coming from the north, from Galilee, uh, they would have two ways to travel. They could go down through Samaria, but often they would avoid that, and they would go around, down through the Jordan River Valley, and then through Jericho, and then literally up to Jerusalem, and it was a hike. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem's 2,500 feet above sea level, so you are going up and up and up. That's the way that Jesus went. Matthew chapter 20 we see that Jesus came through Jericho. Well, in order to get to Jerusalem and to see the temple, one traveling up that way would come over the Mount of Olives. It's actually a very welcome and dramatic sight for a pilgrim. Even today, if you're uh, coming up and you hadn't seen Jerusalem, you've been longing to get there, and you come up onto the peak of the Mount of Olives, and you're looking out over the Kidron Valley, and there it is, the Holy Temple. 
the place to where you are going. It doesn't look quite the same today, but if you could throw up that picture, um, here is a view from the Mount of Olives of where the temple used to be. Uh, the gold dome is the dome of the rock. It's the third holiest site in Islam. But for a pilgrim in Jesus' time, they would have come up basically the same view and seen the great temple standing there. Passover time. It was a very important time for the Jewish people. It's where they remembered their great liberation from Egypt by the mighty hand of Yahweh their God. And not only, though, was this looking back to past liberation, it was also an um, exciting time. It stirred their hopes that God would do it again. Specifically, that he would send an anointed warrior king, one like David, a messiah, to come in to beat back the Romans and to usher in a prosperous age for God's people. So that was the mood, if you like, of this great crowd of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem. They were full of expectancy. They were full of hope. You can leave the picture up there just <coughs> as we can imagine the scene. But this particular Passover was even more intense because there was all of this expectation and hope that was focused on Jesus. Many people had heard reports of the miracles that he had been performing. Many people have seen them with their own eyes. There may have been some in the crowd who had experienced his healing or his deliverance personally. And so there's this buzz going around. Could he be the one? Could this be the one? Could this be the time that the kingdom of God is going to break in? That he's finally going to restore us? To really get inside their minds, we have to think about the kingdom of God. But we often imagine it as a spiritual reality. And it is. It has that dynamic. But to them, it really was an earthly political reality, not this distant heavenly idea. The same was true for their idea of the Messiah. When we think of Messiah, we think the uniquely divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We are right to think so, but they didn't think about it like that. That wasn't how they understood Messiah. He was a political leader. He was a political savior. He was a human being. He maybe spoke for God, but he was a human being. So this was like election season for them. Hopes, desires are running high. People are looking for something big to happen. And especially now that this great prophet, Jesus, this great healer and worker of wonders and teacher had come to Jerusalem at this time during Passover. Well, up to this point, Jesus has been very cautious about <laughs> revealing his identity as the Messiah. If you've read through the Gospels, you'll know that there's this thing called the Messiah secret that he often, it's kind of weird actually, like he'll, he'll say, don't tell anybody who I am. Like, don't tell anybody. I don't want anybody to know. Well, why was he doing that? Well, one of the reasons was it was a very politically dangerous idea to go around saying that you were the Messiah. It could get you in trouble with the Jewish leadership, certainly, but with the Romans as well. So he often told people to keep it on the down low, which didn't work. People went out and told about him anyway. But here in the triumphal entry, we have the first public declaration of Jesus that he is the Messiah. He chooses this moment, just before the Passover, in Jerusalem, in view of the temple, to declare publicly that he is God's long-awaited king. And interestingly enough, he doesn't have to say a word. Instead, all he has to do is to ride a donkey. Before he reaches Jerusalem... He comes into the town of Bethphage near Bethany. It's two small villages on the slope of the Mount of Olives. 
And there he tells his disciples to go fetch for him a donkey and her colt. It's likely that Jesus had prearranged this. Uh, he was known in that area. He had the family of Lazarus and Martha and Mary were in Bethany, right there in that same general area. So it, it might have been that at some point he had kind of prearranged this, and this was like the secret agent sign of, hey, you'll go and you'll find this donkey and colt. But what it tells us is that Jesus was being deliberate about what he was doing. He wasn't just saying, well, I need to come in Jerusalem. Let's just, donkey sounds good. Let's, let's just take a donkey. No, he, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> He knew that he was fulfilling prophecy. Jesus fulfilled many, many prophecies. Uh, some of them were not really earthly speaking, in a human way, uh, an act of his will. So where he was born, in, in a human way, he didn't have control over that. The manner of his death, the same thing. But other times, Jesus very deliberately knows what he's doing, and he is acting out prophecy. And this is one of those cases. The prophecy comes from Zechariah. We heard it read. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the donkey, on Passover, riding into Jerusalem, sent the message Jesus didn't have to say a word. In addition to that, uh, some of the Jewish people would have known their history, and they would have remembered this moment where David, the great king David where his kingship was ending, and he was going to pass it on to a son of David, his son Solomon. And he did that. He said, give to Solomon my mule to ride. That will be his sign of becoming king, riding on the king's mule. So Jesus is deliberately making this kingly proclamation. He's declaring his messiahship. And that was abundantly clear to everyone who was watching. Nobody really missed that message. But whether you accepted it and what it meant to you that he was claiming to be the Messiah is a matter of interpretation. And so I want to look at these three different groups. Who did they think Jesus was? Let's start with the crowds. The pilgrim crowds that were coming with Jesus, they understood what he was saying about being the Messiah and they were celebrating it. They believe that he's the chosen king and we see that come out in their actions and in their words. In response to this claim, uh, we see two symbolic actions. They laid their cloaks down on the road. That was an act of submission, of paying respect to a king. We have an example of that from the Old Testament. It's also an act of sacrifice. Most of these were poor peasant pilgrims. They didn't have a lot. The cloak was a very important piece of clothing. They didn't have ten extra ones at the home in their closets. And so laying that down for these donkeys to trample on was, was a very sacrificial and beautiful act. They also cut branches from trees, and they spread those on the road. In John's Gospel, we're told that they were palm branches. Where does that come from? Well, some years before, a great deliverer named Judas Maccabeus was welcomed into Jerusalem with palm branches. And the story about him, it's not in the Bible because it happened during the intertestamental period when the Old Testament closes before the New Testament starts. But it is celebrated by the Jewish people in Hanukkah where they were delivered from a very evil ruler Antiochus Epiphanes and the temple was rededicated. Well, Judas Maccabeus was at the center of that and he was welcomed to Jerusalem with palm branches. So these palm branches were a political and nationalistic symbol. It was like holding up a sign at a political rally. The palm branch was a way of saying, make Israel great again. 
told you we're at a political rally. <laughs> These pilgrims were also shouting. Now, I don't know exactly what it had been like, but given their, their zealousness, I like to imagine it like a European soccer match. The fans are intense, and they're not just shouting cheers for their team. They're actually provoking and taunting the opposition. What do they say? Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna literally means save us, but it had come to be this, this word of praise for the sovereign. It would be very much like saying, God save the queen, or hail to the chief. It was a rally cry. And so was the son of David. Everybody knew who David was. Everybody knew who the great king of Israel was, and that there was this expectation that a son of David, a Messiah, would come from him. And then there was this phrase, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This one we have to dig a little bit deeper into Psalm 118. But this is a royal welcome. It comes from that psalm, which was used at Passover and had very messianic overtones. It was actually the greeting given by those in Jerusalem to a conquering king as he entered the city. So these pilgrim crowds are saying all of this right out in the open, right in view of the temple, right in front of the Jewish leaders as well as the Romans. They were praising a rival king to Caesar. That's a very bold thing to do. It's no wonder that within a week Jesus would be killed by the power of Rome. Where are the disciples? What group should we put them in? They are a little different than the crowds, right? They've been with Jesus. They've seen his miracles up close. They've heard him uh, give the prediction of his death. They, they know more. And yet I would put them in the group with the crowd. Maybe they weren't quite as open with their declarations. Maybe some of them were. But what I think they share in common is that they think this is the moment. This is the moment that Jesus is coming into his kingdom. Something's going to happen, and they get to be part of it. We see a little bit of their mindset just a chapter earlier, where the mother of James and John, a mother of Jesus, comes up to Jesus and says, When you come into your kingdom, would you remember these two sons of mine? Would you give them special places? Now again, she's probably thinking about this as an earthly political reality, not the spiritual thing. And so she's saying, basically, when you get elected, can my two sons have cabinet positions? Well, the other disciples get mad. Was it because they were so holy and pure and they had the right expectations? Probably not. Probably was because they wanted those seats of power and honor next to Jesus. So I think at some level, the pilgrim crowd and the disciples... They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but their expectations of what that means, how the Messiah will act, what his kingdom will be like, are not at all what Jesus has in mind. What about the religious leaders, especially the temple leadership, the chief priests and the scribes? Well, they understood the claim as well. They knew what Jesus was saying, but they rejected it. A few verses later, verse 15, Jesus has come into the temple area He's done the turning over of tables, and children are running around shouting that same cry of praise, Hosanna to the Son of David. And the chief priests and the scribes, they're indignant. They can't believe that Jesus would let the children speak in this way. But Jesus responds, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. There's an interesting swap going on here. These children are becoming the right Worship leaders in the temple. 
where the worship leaders have gotten it wrong. So the temple leadership, they reject Jesus because they believe he's an imposter. They don't accept his claims. But there's another level of concern they have below the surface. They want to maintain the balance of power. They want to keep the peace. They know that their position and the position of Israel is, is very tenuous in Jerusalem. So they're trying to, to keep a lid on things so that the Romans don't get mad. Because if there's a big rally, if there's some guy proclaiming king, if the, the people are rioting and praising and celebrating another king, then Rome may come down very hard on the temple leadership and on the whole nation. It may take away the certain freedoms that they had to worship in the way that they wanted. We might be able to understand at some level where they're coming from, but we're also told there was another motivation in their heart later in the gospel story, which is that of envy. They were envious of Jesus. He was the one who did miracles. He had the crowds flocking to them. His teaching was with authority, not like that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and they didn't like that. So out of control, out of a desire to keep the peace, to keep their positions, out of envy, the religious leaders reject Jesus and his claim to be the Messiah. 2,000 years later, if we went out into the streets and we asked people that same question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I think we would get very similar answers. We would get one group of people that completely rejects him. They'd say, he is not Lord, he is not Messiah, he is not my king. Now they would couch it in nicer, polite language. They would couch it probably in a great postmodern saying like, hey, I'm glad that Jesus works for you. I think he's a great religious figure, but it's just not how I relate to God and how I do spirituality. And at the end of the day, it's just a rejection. It's the same rejection the religious leaders had. He's not our king. Then you have the other group. Crowds and even I put some disciples in there. They confess that Jesus is the Messiah. They're in his camp, but they have all the wrong expectations. Really, what they want is a God who meets their preconceived notions. This is how I want you to be Messiah, Jesus. Just take care of the Romans, get rid of them first, and then give me a good place in your kingdom. This is how I think I need to be saved, so please save me in this way. A lot of Christians treat God like that. We're honest, a lot of us treat God like that. God, this is how I need you to be Lord to me. God, this is how I want my life to go, so would you please make that happen? These, God, are the circumstances that I'm facing that I don't like, so would you please deliver me from them? Now, in his grace and compassion as a good father, God sometimes meets us right where we are, and he answers those types of prayers. Sometimes he doesn't. But what every disciple has to learn, if we are to be a disciple, is this one simple truth. He is the Lord, and we are not. And if we want to follow Jesus as Lord, we don't get to dictate the terms. We don't get to tell God how to be God. We don't get to tell Jesus what kind of king he is supposed to be. We simply bow the knee and submit to him. Third and finally want to look at who Jesus thought he was. Clearly, he understood himself to be the Messiah. Riding on the donkey, he was making that claim publicly. 
But his understanding of what that meant was very different than the crowds. And I think we get some hints of it in our passage. I want you to notice that in Matthew, the triumphal entry is bracketed by two stories of healing. Just before Jesus went up to Jerusalem, he was in Jericho. And there he's met by two blind men as he was passing by. And these blind men cry out to him the same words, the same royal words, Son of David, Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. The crowd tries to hush them up. But we read in verse 32, Jesus' response, Matthew 20, verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. That was the first healing before the triumphal entry, and then the one after. He comes into the temple courts, and there we're told that the lame and the blind were come to him, and he healed them. Now, this wasn't the first time he had done that. But this one has an extra special significance because he's come as king into Jerusalem. He's in the temple courts and he's healing the blind and the blind, the lame and the blind. We have these Old Testament scriptures that, that indicated that someone who was blind or lame could not serve as a priest in the temple. We even have a scripture that indicates that they shouldn't come into the house of God. But here we have Jesus welcoming them and healing them. Those who were excluded from the presence of God because there was something wrong with them are now being restored. Don't we all have something wrong with us that excludes us from the presence of God? That keeps us from serving Him? That keeps us from drawing near? Unless Jesus does something in us. You see, the crowds want Jesus to triumph over Rome. And perhaps to deal with the corrupt temple leadership. That was the problem to them. That's what needed to be fixed. They had a pretty limited understanding of the problem. Jesus was going after something deeper. He was dealing with the more fundamental human problem. We're sinful. We're broken. We're blind. We're lame. We're excluded from the presence of God. And Jesus is coming to triumph over this. To bring healing. To bring restoration. So that's one hint we get. We're, we're bracketed by these two healings. That says something of the kind of Messiah he thinks himself to be. But the other one is from the great prophecy of Zechariah. Go ahead and turn there, if you would. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You just have to turn back a little bit. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament. Go through Matthew to Malachi and then to Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9. We read again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is how Jesus comes. In humility. Not on a war horse. And you listen to verse 10, what he'll do. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. So we have this humble king 
coming on a donkey, not to make war, but to end it. He's coming to bring peace, not with violence, but to put an end to violence. These are the hints of the kind of Messiah Jesus understands himself to be, and what his kingdom is all about. His triumph is over human brokenness and misery and exclusion. His goal is to bring peace and to end violence. <laughs> Friends, how is he going to do all this? If he's not coming with a war horse, if he's not coming with chariots, if he's not coming with a great army and political maneuvering, how is he going to triumph? By doing the one thing that nobody expected Messiah to do, to willingly lay down his life. And not to go out on a battlefield triumphantly and to, to lay it down in a moment of glory, but to do so shamefully and in apparent defeat on the worst way a person could die. The most dehumanizing, the most ugly, that is conceived just to make the point that this person is less than human and they have been rejected. That is the crucifixion. That's why the Romans came up with it. There was only one crown that awaited them in Jerusalem. We know it, it's the crown of thorns. There was only one throne that they would put him on, and that was a rough wooden cross. Friends, that's where we're going this week. The road to victory is through defeat. The road to life is through death. Jesus, who was equal in the glory of God the Father, came all the way down, and not just in the Incarnation. Paul tells us in Philippians 2. He comes all the way down, not just to death, Paul tells us, but even death on a cross, this despicable, shameful, cursed way to die. As we step into this Holy Week, I want to leave us with a question. If this is the kind of Messiah that we have, if this is what his kingdom is all about, if this is the politic that he practices, is this, if this is the triumph that he proclaims, then what must his people be like? The people who claim to follow him as their Lord. It is good and right that we reenact the political rally of Palm Sunday and that we do so joyfully. It is great that we cry Hosanna and proclaim Jesus as King. But we know where the path goes into suffering, into death, into shame and humiliation. Is that the kind of God you want? Is that the kind of Lord that you want to follow? We are so tempted as a society to bypass Holy Week, bypass Good Friday, and go straight to Easter Sunday. It is a shame that it's this thing that it's kind of optional. There is no Easter without Good Friday. There is no resurrection without Jesus dying. There is no victory without defeat. Our triumph, friends, is the triumph of the cross. This one-time event that saved us, that washed away our sins, that made us right with God, but it also is the pattern of our lives as disciples and as the church. We are a cruciform people. We are the people of the cross. To be a disciple of this Messiah is to take up one's cross daily, following. So this week of all weeks, we get to go to the very heart of the cross, which is the very heart of God and the heart of our identity as his people. Because who is Jesus? He's a crucified Messiah. He's a king that reigns through a cross.
Father, that you would make this alive in our hearts and minds, alive in our churches in this day and age. We need to be reminded of the power of the one who hung in shame and utter defeat, and the ultimate victory, the kind of victory that that brought about. Father, I pray for myself, for my sisters, for my brothers, that this week, as we contemplate the mighty acts of God, it didn't seem so mighty at the time, that you would reveal to us by your Spirit the greatness of them, and send us out in the power of your Spirit to proclaim them in word and deed in our day. And we pray these things in the name of Christ, the crucified Messiah. Amen.